Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. A lot. You would have to pretty much be hiding under a rock to not hear about the Murdoch trial at this point. It's everywhere. When did you first hear about this case? Whenever Paul was going through his incident with Mallory Beach. So back years ago. And it wasn't anywhere near how popular it is now. But then whenever Maggie and Paul had their incident, I don't want to give anything away just yet, (laughs) then it like blew up. And that's when I really got involved in the case. What about you? I think it was around the same time. I'm not sure who covered it on a YouTube video, but I remember it was probably Stephanie Harlow or something. I follow her very closely. If you guys haven't ever heard of her, you think I do a deep dive. She does like five parters. She's going like to the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, she she gives you a whole history lesson. I learn a lot from her, but I don't know if it was her that covered it or what, but I remember hearing something about it and Mm -hmm. how like suspicious it all was and that this family had a bizarre history. But at that point, like you said, none of the rest of this had come out. If you guys are not watching the news, this has been a trial that has been heavily covered on basically every news station and every every social media platform. Everyone has opinions on this. But today, I think to do this story justice and because there is so much to unpack, I'm going to break this case up into two episodes. Today, we're going to go through the timeline, keep it chronological as much as I can. And we're going to start with the start of this family dynasty to the fall of Alec Murdoch, who is the patriarch of the Murdoch family, and who this week, spoiler alert, he was convicted and sentenced for the senseless murder of his own son and wife. Again, I'm going to try to save my opinions. Annie, you can course correct me if I (laughs) I start going on a tangent. I'm going to try to hold off to the second episode and keep this episode mainly to facts and witness accounts because this tangled web is hard enough to navigate through without my speculations. So if you want to grab a snack, well, if you can stomach it, please do, because we're going to be here for a minute, but let's dive in. We try our best to make sure that we can pronounce people's names properly. This was a little confusing to do in this case, because I feel like every news station is saying it differently. I've watched interviews with Alec, whose real name is Richard Alexander, but for some reason he goes by Alec, not Alex. Yes, it's different wherever you hear it from. So we have done the due diligence. It's Alec. That much we know. As far as the last names? Murdoff, Murdo. Murdoch. Merlot. I mean, we're, who knows? Oh, I could go for a glass yeah. of Merlot. <laughs> That'd be a lot easier than covering this case or pronouncing this last name. I say Murdoch, but I don't think people usually emphasize the end of it the way that I do. It's just also like that Southern name that wherever you live all over the country, people pronounce things differently. He says Alec Murdoch, so I'm going with Murdoch. And thank goodness because I spelled it in my little script for today's episode as okay. Alec Murdoch, so I wouldn't mess it up. But bear with us if you have a different pronunciation. Regardless of their name, who the hell are the Murdochs? If you grew up outside of South Carolina, you probably have not heard this family's name until recently. But I assure you, the people of the 14th Circuit District of South Carolina not only know the name, but for the almost century that the Murdoch family has been in power as presiding solicitors and wildly successful law firm owners, you not only know their name, but have learned to fear it. Randolph Murdoch Sr. was born in 1887, He was born into a very privileged family that could afford the best schools and opportunities for their son. And Randolph, well, I'll give him credit where it's due. He took advantage of these opportunities. Randolph would go on to graduate from the University of South Carolina's law program in 1910. 
He quickly set up shop, starting his own law firm and running the local newspaper in Hampton, South Carolina. He's a busy man. But apparently not busy enough for his liking because just 10 years later, with his law firm booming and hiring on other lawyers, he ran as a candidate for the position of solicitor. Now, if you're in the U.S., that's just kind of another term for basically the lead prosecuting attorney. But he ran with the slogan, a vote for Randolph Murdoch will not only be a vote for the winner, but will secure you of having a faithful, fearless, and competent solicitor. I guess it worked because he won and perhaps unknowingly became the first in a long line of successors from his family tree. They were socialites gracing the pages of the local paper, which again, he ran. So I'm sure he did a nice job editing. Only, in. only positive things about our, about our friend Randolph. <laughs> I wouldn't even try to dig up bad stuff on him because when he's the one running the paper, it's going to be a little biased. And apparently his family was living the high life. Unfortunately, Randolph Sr. would meet a very untimely end just 20 years later at the age of 59. According to a Washington Post article by Jillian Brockwell, Randolph Sr. had been in not so good of health the cause of which was kind of unknown at the time. But he was feeling good enough on the evening of July 18, 1940, to head into a buddy's house a few towns over. But just hours later, on his return home around 1 a.m., Randolph Sr.'s car would come to a stop at a railroad crossing, and the train, unable to stop in time, collided with his vehicle, killing him instantly. Do we know if this was purposeful? The train engineer would later give a statement that as the train approached, Randolph Sr.'s vehicle was not on the tracks, but instead parked near it. And he seemed to lift his hand in a wave to the conductor of the oncoming train. But just moments before the train crossed, the car sped up, moving onto the tracks and coming to a complete stop on the tracks. So we will probably never know if this was done deliberately in a successful attempt to end his own life. Or if maybe they were throwing back some martinis, having some cigars, being men of that era, and let's be honest, men of this era too. And women. You know, I like good martini I mean, and a good cigar. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Well, not right now you can't, no. but in a couple months, <laughs> yes. we'll enjoy them together. So maybe he's at his buddy's house, they're having some drinks, and maybe he made a fatal error while intoxicated. Put his foot on the gas instead of the brake. His body was recovered almost 150 feet away from the point of impact. So there's not a whole lot they could do to figure out what had happened there, especially if you keep in mind this is the early 1900s. So what is a family of lawyers to do when they lose their patriarch? Make more lawyers. Sure, but they're also going to file a lawsuit. Of course. His son, Randolph Jr., filed a lawsuit against the railroad company CSX Transportation, saying that the poor maintenance of the tracks contributed to their father's death. They winded up settling out of court for an undisclosed amount, but let's be honest, it was probably a good chunk of change. Randolph Jr., who had also become a lawyer at his father's firm, ran to fill his father's seat as solicitor and won by a landslide, and he held that position for 46 years. A Wikipedia article about the Murdochs tells us that he was quite the showman in the courtroom and would often act out the murders almost in some sort of weird game of charades he liked the attention he loved the spotlight he wanted all eyes on him he had that powerful name backing him up he probably thought he could do no wrong yeah and we would go on to find out that was pretty much true his performances i'm going to call them performances would really capture the attention of the jury but it got him into some hot water with the judges when i'm picturing this in my head did you ever watch matlock no. It kind of reminded me of the show Matlock, where you see this kind of nice southern old man 
and he's in the courtroom and you're not really sure how the episode's going to go, but you're like, oh, it's that person that he's guilty. And then they do that thing on the stand where it's like, but no, it was her and like turns to someone in the audience. And everyone goes, yeah. <laughs> I picture that's kind of what it was like, because if you think now we have all this technology where we can kind of show more stuff in court. So it sounds like he took it upon himself to create the show and bring the jury in, which could be a really good thing. He sounds like he was good at his job for sure. Was he? Or was he just blessed to be born into a family? Maybe, or maybe he was just a very talented performer. He should have been on Broadway. Greatest showman. He missed his calling. He retired in 1986, but not before facing charges from a federal grand jury for helping alert bootleggers in South Carolina to get out of town. But of course, he was acquitted. That was not the end of their reign, though, because then there's Randolph III. I know I said I was going to put my opinions in here. It's a lot of Randolphs. It's a lot of Randolphs. He took over as a solicitor after his father's retirement in 1986, and he would hold that office until he retired in 2006. So now we have three Murdoffs, all Randolph, one, two, and three, all with the same name, which to your point, Annie, I think is a little odd if I'm honest. You do you, obviously, but I don't really understand the desire to pass down your entire first and last name generation after generation. To me, it kind of reads as like, here, son, let me remind you every day that you are living in my shadow and must live up to this name and the profession that we have chosen for you from birth. Yeah, I wonder if because that name was so powerful, they thought it was like a blessing. Like you're lucky to be named after me because everyone's going to know who you are from the time you're a wee little two-year-old in the grocery store going up through law school. It is crazy how names work. Yeah, like you're an extension of that person, right? You're sharing the same name. Yeah. There's a weight that comes with that name. There's a power that certainly came with this family's name. But I just wonder if that would kind of mess a kid up a little bit of like, okay, now I'm the fourth, fifth, 15th of these people. Do I have an option of what I'm supposed to do in my life? That's a good point. And what expectation am I supposed to live up to? Well, I feel like the uh, expectations for this family is going to go downhill real quick. Yep, you would be right. Because <laughs> again, this is our true crime podcast. Yeah. So that's usually how <laughs> we're these not here to talk go. about all these awesome Randolphs. <laughs> the three Randolph Murdoffs have now been prosecuting criminal and civil cases for this district for 86 years. How many generations are we at? At least three. Three, yep. And you bet that's probably going to make them a family that is very well connected, has ties to lawmakers, law enforcement. Basically, anyone is a who's who. In fact, they were so powerful as a family that the 14th Circuit District was often just referred to as the Murdoch District. Wow. That says a lot. Yeah. You better be on their good side. Because, Annie, can you name our defense attorney for our county? District? State? No, (laughs) I have no idea. Me either. So the fact that this family was so well known that that's the nickname they got. This is a smaller town than Denver, obviously. But still, that says a lot. And they've planted their seed and this Murdoch tree is just growing. Here's where Mr. Richard Alexander Murdoch, he does go by Alec. This man has been giving redheads a bad name in the press. I don't appreciate it, but this is where he comes into the picture. He was born in 1968 and was the son of Randolph Murdoch III. The only reason he didn't inherit the family name was because that honor went to his brother, Randolph Murdoch the Fourth. Oh my gosh. But guess what he does for a living? Let me guess, he's in law. Oh, wow, shocking. <laughs> 10 points for Annie. <laughs> Alec graduated from South Carolina School of Law and joined the family practice. He married Margaret Kennedy Brandstetter. 
She went by Maggie, so that's how I'm going to refer to her throughout the episode. And together they had two sons, Richard Alexander, because now we got to name him after yourself, The tree is now having another branch shoot out of its trunk, and it's like, okay, we're going to repeat the name Richard now. Yep, so you got the Richards and the Randolphs. It's kind of like the Kardashians with all the K names. At at this point, it is. And then the other one's name is so simple. Paul. Paul. I like that. I do want to point out Richard Alexander Jr. His nickname was Buster, and that's what everybody called him. Before I get into the suspicious deaths surrounding this family, we need to talk a little bit about the family practice. They specialized in personal injury cases. I'm sure you've all been driving down a highway. You know the billboards when you're driving that say, if you've ever been injured in an accident, called 1-800-MAN-DOWN or something like that. The hammer, the heavy hitter. What's the heavy hitter? The heavy hitter is the way to go. Call 458-0000. Whoa, it, sponsor us. <laughs> that was a good plug. It was like a, it was a um, law firm that specialized in this kind of area in my hometown. And obviously, it stuck with me for years, but they make some big money in that practice. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not poking fun at these services because mistakes happen, things are overlooked, and we all know that corporations worry more about the bottom dollar than investing money into protecting their employees and the public. I could do episodes probably till the end of time covering just wrongful death suits to negligence on corporations' behalf. The reason I'm giggling, though, is kind of what Annie said. Some of these commercials and jingles for these accident attorneys are cringy, but they also... They stay with you. Yeah, it's like they just drill a little hole into your brain. Anyways, their law firm was massively successful, and they received millions upon millions in settlements for their clients, which all sounds great if Alec wasn't allegedly being such a shady-ass man who cared more about his family's image and keeping up with the Joneses, the very rich Joneses, than making sure his clients or the families of his clients were taken care of. In November of 2021, and I want you to really remember this date as I will refer back to it later, the South Carolina grand jury issued five indictments against Alec Murda on 27 charges of embezzlement and other crimes including breach of trust, fraudulent intent, money laundering, computer crimes, and forgery. But to date, Alec Murda has been charged with 88 crimes, all relating to fraud and embezzlement. My jaw is on the ground. That is so many. Obviously, we'd be here for a while if I tried to go into detail about each one. But let me sum up what Alec is suspected of doing. He would represent a client in a wrongful death or injury claim, then secretly come to a settlement agreement for his clients with whoever they were suing, then would tell the family that the settlement was for a smaller amount and pocket the rest of it for himself. And I know what you may be thinking, listeners. Well, if he's the lawyer representing the client, then his pay usually does come out of the settlement money. Of course, he's going to take what is owed to him for representing these clients. Well, also the thing is, he's the one with the contracts. He's the one doing the negotiating. He's the one keeping them in the dark. That's my issue. It's one thing to go, hey, I charge a lot of money. I'm actually going to take this big chunk of your settlement, FYI. But to hide that from people is disgusting. It actually gets more gross than you can even imagine because not only is he just charging a significant portion, which makes sense. You know, once you have really established yourself as a lawyer, your price goes up as it should. Or your grandpa established it for you. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're not wrong there. That's fine. I have no problem with that. Know your worth, baby. Sure. But also, that's not what he was doing. He was taking the money that was owed to him as a representative of these families but let's say he would be like, oh, you won $1 million and the settlement was for $50 million. He's pocketing the majority of this. Wow. And the family has no idea. This powerful white Southern lawman, which I need to point out because we are in the South, 
This is a family dynasty. It matters that he was a white privileged man. Absolutely. I want to talk about exactly who he usually took advantage of. That was his minority clients that were not well off, which is disgusting in and of itself. But not only that, let's keep in mind that some of his clients he was representing in these cases have died. So he's essentially stealing from the dead and their surviving family members. So let's quickly go through a couple disturbing instances of this. The one most discussed in the media is the death of his housekeeper. But we're going to hold off on that. We will get to it. Let's start with Hakeem. Hakeem Pickney was a deaf African-American man that unfortunately was left on life support after a 2009 traffic accident. Just two years later, Hakeem would pass away in a care facility when his ventilator was mysteriously unplugged. Oh. That's strange. Yeah, a ventilator doesn't just fall out of a socket. It's in there pretty good. And there's some safety precautions as well. And you can see someone on a ventilator. They need that to literally support their life. Right. It is called life support. (laughs) (laughs) And who represented Hakeem's family in both the cases against the tire manufacturer and the care facility? Alec, of course. Good Samaritan Alec. He reached out to the family and introduced them to Russell Lafayette, who is the CEO of Palomato State Bank. So he's telling this family, trust this man. He can help you navigate all this new money. He can help you invest. This is a lot of money for you guys, so I want to make sure that it's being handled properly. And Russell is the man to help you do that. Well, isn't it ironic that Russell would later be fired when an estimated $800,000 to $1 million went missing from those settlements, and there were allegations that Russell and Alec were in cahoots the entire time to steal from this grieving family. That's horrible. I also want to point out that allegations must have had a lot of facts to them because... Russell's family owned this bank. They had for over a century. So they're not going to take out one of their own and the CEO unless they're doing some serious damage control. And he had some charges pressed against him as well. Or what about Sandra Taylor, a woman who was tragically killed by a drunk driver? Here comes Alex again to save the day and represent Sandra's mom in a lawsuit. Except imagine her surprise when Alec told her they had indeed reached a settlement for $30,000, and she later found out that the settlement was for well over $180,000. He was willing to allegedly steal $150,000 from yet again the family of someone who is grieving the untimely loss of their loved one. Well, and families in that position, you're going to trust the lawyer. I'm sure he put on, like his grandpa... Such a show, such the Southern gentleman, like, I, I have your best interests at heart. I'm going to help you. I'll handle all the contracts. I'll handle the money. Here's a great banker. I'm setting. You feel kind of special, like, okay, my life is at this low point, but I have someone here, kind of the saving grace. Yeah, to your point earlier, he, he knew exactly who he was choosing. Absolutely. And I've watched interviews with him, and I got to say, I get why it works. Yeah. That Southern accent makes you sound as sweet as pie. It does. Polite. I mean, just by nature, I hear I hear a bless your heart, and I still think it's a compliment, <laughs> even though I know better. Honestly, that alone is enough to form my opinion of Alec. And if you can sleep at night knowing your riches are built off embezzling and flat out stealing money from the dead, I already know you're pawn scum with no moral compass. But now we need to get back a little bit in time to start the timeline of the mysterious deaths surrounding the Murdoch family. In July of 2015, a passerby called 911 to report that he had found a body in the middle of the road. 
This was the body of 19-year-old Stephen Smith. Stephen was a gorgeous young man. I mean, he was he really a was. looker. Yeah, yeah. He's so cute, little face, better eyebrow grooming than I've ever had. Great blonde bang swoops. I mean, he, he had it all. He kind of had the Bieber look he almost. Did. He was studying nursing at a tech school before going on, hopefully, to pursue his long-term goal of becoming a doctor. It doesn't seem that there was one person who had anything unkind to say about Stephen. He was charming, had a lot of great friends who accepted and loved him for who he was, which was a massive support to the teen who was openly gay. Stephen was found in the middle of a two-lane road. He had substantial blunt force trauma to his head and scratches on his arms. His shoes, which I will put a picture up on our Instagram, are often brought up in reference to this case because they were very loosely tied, but yet still were on Stephen's feet. I honestly would call it a stretch to even say that they were tied. They looked like he had slipped them on, maybe rushing out the door for class or something. They were not substantially secured to his feet. When the local sheriff's office arrived at the scene, they were really quick to start labeling this a hit and run. Why? Well, because the body was found in the middle of the road. That is pretty much a statement you'll hear repeatedly when you hear interviews or you read any type of notes around this case is that everyone's answer was he was in the middle of the road. Very dismissive. Yeah, and we're going to get into that. But let's go over the evidence and see if us armchair detectives can spot some puzzling evidence here. Stephen's car was broken down alongside of the road three miles away from where the body was found. To me, that doesn't seem all that suspicious. Maybe Stephen ran out of gas, pulled over on the side of the road, and realizing the issues was going to walk to the next gas station. After all, his gas tank cover was taken off. Okay. But Stephen was found in the road the opposite direction of the closest gas station. Like, if you look at where his car was, he was clearly walking away in the opposite direction of the nearest gas station. And is the assumption that he knew this road? He oh, knew yeah. which way to go? Okay. It was a common yeah. road for him. Well, he had to take it very often to and from school and work and all that. What makes this theory even less likely? Stephen's wallet was found inside the vehicle. So if he was walking to get gas, what was he going to buy that gas with? Okay, so maybe he thought, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Maybe he thought he was closer to home than he really was. And he would just walk home and worry about it in the morning. But still, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to leave your wallet out in the open overnight like that. No, I feel like everyone, keys, phone, wallet, boom, boom, boom. You have them all at once. Right. I'm going to run down some forensic evidence at the scene that also had me puzzled about how and really questioning why the local sheriff's office was so quick to rule Stephen's death a hit and run. Like I said, there was blunt force trauma to Stephen's head, but yet the blood found at the scene was pooled very close to the body. Not to be too morbid, but you would think if he was struck by a vehicle, the blood evidence would show the point of impact as well as maybe the trajectory the body took after, or if Stephen's poor body had been dragged or relocated by the car, we would see evidence of that blood moving in a certain pattern. 100%. But yet, it's all just there at the point of impact. Okay. What's more, if a car struck him, then why was there no broken glass from a car mirror or window breaking? There was no plastic or metal broken off car parts at the scene of the crime whatsoever. If he was lifted off the ground by the force of this impact, then how can the shoes that were barely on to begin with not come flying off his feet? There was also no skid marks indicating someone had slammed on the brakes or tried to swerve away like you would if you saw a deer crossing the road. Nothing. 
What's more, what logical sense does it make that a smart, quite honestly brilliant young man, would choose to walk in the center of the road at night? Because to believe the sheriff's office and pair their story with the blood found at the scene, he would have had to be in the center of the road, struck by a vehicle, and then crumpled to the ground exactly where he was hit. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, I'm not a forensic expert, and I don't even pretend to understand anything about physics. That is way over my head. But you don't have to be for that just logically to not make any sense whatsoever. But what does this have to do with the Murdoch family? Before I get into that, I want to say that this is currently an open investigation and a lot of the witness statements could just be hearsay. So let's keep an open mind and walk through some suspicious activity by the Murdoch family in Stephen's case. Before Stephen's father could even get down to discuss the investigation with police, it's reported that he got a very surprising phone call from Alec's dad. Remember Mr. Randolph Murdoch III? offering not only his legal representation at no cost, but also investigative services. He even requested that the family give him Stephen's phone and social media passwords to help aid his investigation. That is so sketchy. So as Stephen's dad is on the way, he gets a call. He hadn't even left the house yet. Which obviously just goes to show that law enforcement was calling Randolph or he was there with Or he was aware of it real quick. yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. He at this time is no longer the district solicitor. He had already retired. The family has a personal injury and wrongful death practice. Sure, that could make sense in this case. But if Randolph III suddenly became a PI, why even if he had these passwords, would he have access to the phone that the passwords were used on? Because guys, the phone was on Stephen's body. Oh, did I mention also the phone screen? Not cracked even a little, even though he got in this tragic hit and run. And Randolph already has the phone in his possession. That's a question we don't have the answer to. But it's interesting to me that he would have access to that phone. At least that's the implication. When someone says, I need a social media password, well, you can log into Instagram off your laptop or any laptop, right? If you have the password. But how would he get into his phone if he didn't have access to it? Something's up. Furthermore, as investigators looked into the crime, multiple tips from witnesses came forward naming Buster Murdoch as either being a part of the death of Stephen or they alleged that the former high school peers had been intimately and romantically involved. I do not make it my business to out people or speculate on anyone's sexuality. That's their journey. And frankly, none of my business and I don't care who you like. It's of no consequence to me. But it should become the business of these investigators to look into if there is truth to these rumors. Because I hate to say it, those closest to you are usually the ones that are involved in stuff like this. And they're the ones who are looked at very closely in the beginning. As soon as anything happens, you go to the husband or the wife. Then you kind of work your way out in this outward circle. So yeah, if there was even a rumor or an inkling that Buster was connected, he should have been talked to right then. But I'm guessing he wasn't. Buster Murdoch was never interviewed. A pathologist ruled Stephen's death was consistent with vehicular injury and that the cause of the blunt force trauma to his head was most likely due to him being struck by the side mirror of a vehicle. Okay, I'm picturing this guy. I don't know how tall he is, but a side mirror to do that kind of damage to literally make you drop to the ground and die? Well, it could be a truck. That would put it at the right height. That's true. And I guess in the South, everyone does have those lifted trucks. (laughs) Right. So definitely could put it at the right height. 
I think that, again, this is me speculating. I don't know diddly. But I think the assumption here was if the actual vehicle itself hit, this isn't making a whole lot of sense. No. So we're going to go with the mirror hit him. Okay. Because then maybe the impact wouldn't be as dramatic where his body would be relocated down the road a ways. Sorry again to be morbid. But that maybe he could kind of crumple where he was hit. It's a stretch, but I, I can see it. Well, Highway Patrol officers that responded to the scene who clearly would have had a lot of experience examining vehicular crime scenes, they didn't agree at all with the local sheriff's offices or the pathologist's conclusion. The investigating officer even challenged the pathologist's findings. See, not only did the rumors in town say that Buster and Stephen had been intimately involved, but also placed him possibly near the scene of the crime. He was reported to be returning home that night in a truck... Oh. With some buddies from a softball tournament in another town. So he asked the medical examiner, could it have been a baseball bat that killed Stephen? To which she reportedly snapped at him. That's your job to find out before ushering him quickly out of her office. Very defensive for no reason. You're a pathologist. You should just be facts. You yeah. shouldn't be motivated by anything else besides that. Is it a pride thing or is there someone telling you this needs to be case closed and ASAP? I'm going to go with the second option. But why would Buster want to possibly cause Stephen harm if they had been romantically involved? Well, we know there are crimes against homosexual people that happen at a disturbingly alarming rate. Could Buster have wanted to prove to his buddies that the rumor wasn't true, that he wasn't gay, even though there's nothing wrong with it if you are? and decided when they happened to pass by Stephen on the road that night that this was his opportunity to prove his straight manliness by, you know, I'm the alpha and roughing up Stephen, maybe. And if that's the case, maybe he didn't even mean to kill Stephen. Unfortunately, we just don't know at this point, but it's interesting. It is. I also just feel like that is such a wrong place, wrong time. I don't know how big this town is, but for Buster and his friends to happen to pass Stephen, who's supposedly involved in Buster. Is there ever an idea that Stephen called him? I said I wasn't going to do speculations oh, this yeah. episode. <laughs> We're sticking to facts. We're sticking to facts. It just feels off to me that like you have all these country roads and then he happens to stumble upon someone and then kill him if that is what happened. Allegedly, we're using the A word a lot in this because I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to get. Sued. I'm not messing with the family this lawyers. Good at this. Yeah. I see where you're going with this. I will just point out one thing we already discussed, or two things. The family supposedly already reached out about getting information of how to get into his phone. Mm -hmm. So let's say there was a call made. Did his dad give him access to his phone? Could something have been deleted? Call logs? Or maybe the dad didn't do that at all. And once it was into evidence who would have a lot of power and access to some law enforcement that I'm sure they've done favors through That's throughout so the true. years. Yeah, yeah. So I can't answer that question, but I don't think it's that far-fetched when you see what happens later that this family should be looked into, to put it very mildly, because they are very good at hiding not only money, but evidence. And whatever story they want to tell is the story that is usually told to the media told the other survivors of these incidents it's almost like hard to believe this is real life oh no it sounds fake everything with this family is like this is out of a horror movie this isn't no, truly it's like happening. watching dynasty 
Yeah. That old, like with the big hair and the Aquanet hairstyles and all that stuff and the gaudy jewelry. That's what I like. feel like I'm watching is some ridiculous soap opera where you watch it and you're like, oh, this is so fake. So but unbelievable. I got to stay for the next episode to see whose you know, son was really their brother or whatever the case is. <laughs> it's hard to believe. It's so far from how I grew up. Obviously, I didn't grow up in the South and the culture there and all of that. But it's also just hard to believe when you look into the facts. Because, quite frankly, some things that you think are facts, you have to also keep an open mind that maybe they've been altered by this family before we're reading them as factual information. So true. So true. Tragically, Stephen's father would die just a few months later after his son in his sleep of a heart attack. Many say he died due to a broken heart after losing his son. Prior to his death, it was reported that he told a friend, I know the Murdochs killed my son because he was gay. I know my son. He was seeing Buster. Oh, gosh. That gave me goosebumps. Like as a dad to know that, but also to know how powerful this family is. To know at the end of the day, justice is never going to be served. Like that just feels so hopeless. Well, let's not say never. Okay. I like this. A little a little ray of sunshine shining through the windows. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many weird things that went on during this investigation, including the chain of command being broken with evidence. Especially some concerning breaking of chain of command when they left Stephen's clothing from the scene at the funeral home for quite some time before entering into police custody. I want to just point out there was some microscopic paint chips found on this clothing, which obviously might not have been detected on his body at the scene. But I find it interesting that these paint chips weren't found anywhere else, just on the clothing that was not in police custody for a couple of days. So that's strange. That is strange. Then knowing the multiple rumors about Buster and his relationship and him being directly involved with Stephen's death, it's just hard not to wonder if there was an elaborate cover-up by the Murdoch family to make sure this case was ruled a hit and run, despite, in my opinion, clear indications that the evidence does not point to that. Thankfully, SLED, which is the acronym for South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, basically their version of like the FBI, but at the state level, announced that they are taking over the investigation of Stephen's death due to new evidence that was uncovered during the Murdoch murder case. And that's happening now? They're it was looking- open okay. two weeks after he got arrested. Wow. We don't currently know what that evidence is that they found or came across, but I can only hope that if Buster was somehow involved or not, regardless, I just want answers for the Smith family. It cannot bring back Sandy Smith's beloved son or her husband, but this family deserves answers. This boy was 19 years old. With everything going for him. And truly, they need honest answers. Not just some placating, oh, he got hit by a mirror of a truck. Eh. No, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Prove it to me. Bring out a scientist that can right. prove to me how this is even possible. Absolutely. I also want to shout out that during my research, I found out that there is currently a change.org petition in memory of Stephen. South Carolina is one of the only two states in the nation that does not have a hate crime law at the state level. Hate crimes are crimes that typically involve violence that are motivated by prejudice on the basis of ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or similar grounds. I know we have amazing listeners on this podcast who believe that people should not be targets of violence for any reason, but specifically not targeted for what religion they practice, the color of their skin, or who they love. So I'm going to link the petition in the show notes, and I encourage you all to take a minute, join in with me, and sign the petition in memory of Stephen Smith. 
Gloria Satterfield had been a caretaker to the Murdoch boys, Paul and Buster, from a very young age. I think Paul was like two when she joined the family. So he literally grew up with her. Absolutely. Her and Paul shared an especially close bond, him thinking of her as like a mother figure of sorts. As the boys grew up and no longer needed the supervision of Gloria as a babysitter, she stayed on as the family housekeeper. A lot of the reason for keeping her on as the housekeeper was because of the bond that her and Paul shared. Yeah. Well, you think about all the influence a good nanny can have or a good babysitter, like a family friend. I feel like she was that kind of figure for him. Exactly. In the Netflix documentary, The Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal, the ex-girlfriend of the now-deceased Paul Murdoch explained how close of a relationship Paul and Gloria had. She reported that Gloria had been cleaning the house and found narcotic prescription medication belonging to Alec Murdoch taped to the underside of his bed. And because she feared Maggie's response, that's the mom, to this information, she confided in Paul about it instead. Again, this all is hearsay, but it might point to a reason or even a motive to what would happen next. On the morning of February 2nd, 2018, 911 was called from the Murdoch home. Maggie Murdoch had placed the call, and I always say you can't judge someone's response to a shocking or tragic event, but this call is interesting to say the least. Maggie is surprisingly calm for someone who had just come upon her long-term housekeeper laying motionless, question mark, at the bottom of the stairs bleeding from her head. Maggie says she is not responsive, but awake. You can hear the 911 operator press her for answers and getting frustrated with Maggie's short responses. She even says at one point, I already have responders on the way. Me asking questions is not going to slow them down, ma'am. She just wants to know how bad is this scene. Right. She has to send the right people and also prepare them. Like that time, the five minutes, 10 minutes, however long it's going to take an ambulance to get there, the more information they have of what they're walking into, the better. They can prep the hospital. Like we have someone who has traumatic brain injury coming in. She's still alive, though. Like, yeah, the more information, the better. Well, Maggie tries to get off the phone saying Gloria fell down again, which is odd since she said she already was on the ground. Maggie gets off the phone and passes it to her husband, Alec. Doesn't say goodbye or what she's doing, but I'm not going to put too much weight in that. Maybe she just got flustered and handed the phone to her husband. He tells the responder that Gloria is bleeding from her head and her ear and that he was trying to hold her upright, but she slumped back down. When I heard that, I went, uh... The math ain't mathin'. My head's cocked to the side. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Well, I think it's pretty common knowledge that unless you have to move someone from a fire or a wreckage or something like immediate danger, if there is potential trauma to the neck or the head, what do you not do? You don't touch them. There, there's blood coming out of her ear. Yeah, you That's don't some move That's internal them. damage. No. You could paralyze them unintentionally. You absolutely do not move someone that has had a head or neck injury. Listeners, if you didn't know it, now you do. Unless there is something that is... a bigger risk factor and it is happening right then you know someone gets in a car accident the car is on fire you obviously have to pull them out and whatever right. damage is done is done because you know they're going to die otherwise yeah but not chilling on a patio after falling down some stairs in a safe environment ambulances are on the way don't touch her and you're picking her up and then she's slumping back to the ground that just seems oh, strange me to me yeah it sounds so bad This obviously stuck out to me. Why is he trying to get an injured woman who is bleeding from the head upright? The operator again gets upset now with Alec, who does not want to answer the operator's questions. He even says, like, why are you asking me so many questions? Like, he just kind of puts up a little fight about it. 
He then ends the call before the emergency personnel arrive at the scene, which is also odd. They usually will ask you to stay on the phone with them until people arrive. This poor operator. She's probably like, what is happening right now? She's just trying to get answers. She's trying to assess the scene from miles away in her office. They're not being A, respectful or be helpful. Or forthcoming. Yeah. All of their answers made no sense of what they were doing or what was happening. Multiple times during this call, Maggie and Alec both say that she is mumbling, not speaking. Yet it's told to responding personnel that Gloria told Alec she had tripped over the dogs and fell down the stairs. How? Is it possible when the injury first happened, she was able to speak? Sure, I guess. But yet presumably, Maggie called 911 immediately after the fall and says repeatedly that Gloria is not able to speak. So you have two very different statements. You have one saying she can't speak, and then you have one saying she's saying this story about how the dogs knocked her down. No. Gloria was taken to the hospital and treated for multiple rib fractures, a pulmonary contusion, which is the bruising of the lung, usually caused by trauma to the chest, and a subdural hematoma, which is bleeding inside the skull from damage to a blood vessel or vessels between the skull and the brain, resulting in a clot that places pressure on the brain and damages it. Tragically, Gloria died just a few weeks later on February 26th after contracting pneumonia and having other complications. She was only 57 years old. Her injuries just sound really harsh for a dog tripping her. You covered that case, the Spreckle Mansion. Oh, that one. And in my head, I was thinking it was those types of steps. So when I heard eight steps, I went, oh my gosh. But I thought it would be indoor steps. These are front steps to a front patio. So the steps are maybe four inches tall. Not the like you're up at the top of eight steps and you're, you know, heavy breathing. Hey, that is me nowadays. (laughs) Right. That's why I I said you. Yeah. (laughs) I, on the other hand, can get up a flight of steps. And be, and have all your wind in your lungs. Must be nice. This is a lot of injury that if you just trip, so you don't have any inertia, any force, right? Besides just your body weight. That's a pretty intense fall. We're getting There's not as much distance. But to have the chest injuries, the broken ribs, and the I, I see the hard head. I mean, of if course. you hit your head on brick or a patio. Oh, that's, absolutely. But the other two are just, they stick out to me weirdly. You know what, though? Despite not having an autopsy performed. What? Yep. And the coroner not being notified of her death, her death certificate shows that she died of natural causes. No way. Here's the thing. If it was even an accident, it would still be labeled an accidental death. It would not just be natural causes. Or it might be like blunt force trauma to the head was the cause of death. Exactly. So let's go with their theory that this is an awful accident. Of course, it's terrible. However, there are enough things that aren't adding up in the Murdoch story of the events of that day. I think it would be fair for investigators to take a further look into this and truly investigate her death. Maybe do that autopsy. Did she possibly know too much about the family's dirty dealings? Because this is around that time where Alec really, as far as we know, he has very much started this embezzling and fraudulent money thing, plus finding the drugs underneath the bed. Maybe she told Maggie about the drugs. And it caused an altercation. She was already concerned about Maggie's response. And maybe she got pushed. We just don't know. But remember how I told you that Alec Murdoch had allegedly long history of profiting off others' tragedies? Well, being the cold-hearted snake he is, he goes to her two grieving sons the day of her funeral and says, Hey, let me represent you in a lawsuit against me. 
Since she was my employee and got hurt on my property, we will get medical expenses paid and make sure that you two boys are taken care of. Wow, how kind. Except when Alec received the almost $4.3 million payout from the insurance company, Gloria's sons never received a dime. That is, my sentence is gone. Like, what? In fact, I read through Alec's text to this son. Interesting that he wrote, I am finally getting some movement in the case. When in reality, when he sent that text, two of the policies had already paid out and he had already pocketed it. Alec may not have caused the death of Gloria, but profiting off the death of someone, and this isn't just people now that were his clients, people that he didn't know. This is someone who is taking care of your two boys. Who basically raised your youngest. As her own, practically. And Paul loved her. Who's in your house every day. You have to be a certain kind of person to want to take advantage of someone that you know and love's family. That's a lot of money, too. Well, hopefully this is raising some eyebrows, and it seems like it has because her family has given permission for Gloria's body to be exhumed. As of March 3rd of this year, the exhumation has not taken place yet. That's interesting. So they're going to exhume her body and look at the injuries. And finally do an autopsy. I'm going to keep my little ears and eyes peeled. I know that the son has made a statement that he does not know at this point when they are going to be exhuming her body. I would imagine that they want to respect her and her privacy and um, potentially we're waiting for the trial to get over. And they probably don't want cameras at the cemetery. Exactly. Like, that's too much. It's a lot. And the last thing anyone in that family needs, her brothers, sisters, sons, is to have to watch that take place and see footage of it. We've now covered two suspicious deaths that are speculated to be tied to Buster and potentially Alec or Maggie. But now we have come to a death that is absolutely the responsibility and the result of the decisions made by the youngest son, Paul Murdoch. I have to be honest, this case is so troubling on so many levels, but it's also really difficult for me to navigate because while Paul was reckless and selfish and made decisions that directly resulted in the death of an innocent young girl, Paul later would become a victim himself. And usually I say we feel bad for what the perpetrator went through as a child, and yet we can still hate what they do as adults. But to me, this case is the reverse of that. I can hate the actions that Paul took as a teenager, and still we have to separate those feelings to remember that he was also the victim later in his short life when he was murdered in cold blood. I think the Netflix documentary that came out about this case really paints the story well, And if you have not watched it, I would encourage you to do so because friends and family of Mallory Beach show through pictures and statements just how incredibly special Mallory was beyond her outer beauty, which she had in leaps and bounds. I mean, she was so stunning. She seemed to be an incredibly loyal friend that would go out of her way to bring light to others who were struggling. Mallory was born April 18th, 1999 in Waterboro, South Carolina, to Philip Harley and Renee Searson Beach. She worked at a local clothing boutique and was attending college. She had also begun dating Anthony Cook, and from the videos, those two seemed quite smitten. Just so sweet, so in love, and they had been friends since childhood. They were in the beginning stages of what looked like it could have been a great love story. They had a pretty tight-knit friend group. Mallory's best friends were Morgan and Miley, and they were in relationships with Paul Murdoch and Anthony's cousin, Connor Cook, respectively. 
Morgan talks pretty extensively in the documentary how Paul had begun drinking in excess and that their relationship had become toxic, even privately resulting in physical and verbal abuse. It seemed to become such a pattern that they had even created a nickname for Paul's drunken alter ego. They called him Tommy. What I'm questioning is how old are these kids? These are teenagers. They are definitely not legally able to drink, and I'm not going to knock them because that would be very hypocritical of me. I definitely had some drinks in high school. Yeah, it feels like an adult relationship. I mean, sadly, the abuse, the heavy drinking. I'm thinking, aren't these like teenagers? His drinking, from all accounts, it seemed like it had become a problem and a problem that should have been addressed. But seemingly, Paul's parents almost encouraged this type of wild behavior, allowing and even supplying the underage teens with alcohol on quite a few occasions. I point this out because Morgan tells stories about how often when Paul would find himself in trouble, Alec Murdoch or his grandfather, Randolph Murdoch III, are we getting sick of saying these names yet? Because I am. (laughs) We're quick to pull strings and make it go away. One night in particular after partying, Paul rolled the truck he was driving when Morgan was in the vehicle. But when Paul's parents showed up, they removed the alcohol and guns that had been inside of Paul's vehicle, took the kiddos home, and mysteriously was never reported and never came up again. On the night of February 23rd, 2019, Paul Murdoch and Morgan paired up with Anthony and Mallory and Miley and Connor to attend an oyster roast, which I would not be attending if I was there because I hate oysters. I am team oyster till I die. I love oysters. Raw oysters. Yes. Give me all the horseradish, the cocktail sauce, the lemon juice, and give me a glass of champagne and I'm a very happy person. Okay, now here's my point. And you just proved it in that statement. If you would never eat it raw without all those condiments. I do, though. You just are. I'm slurping them down. You're slurping them down with no condiments. None. One time Derek ate 18 oysters in two minutes, and I'm not kidding you. Like, we're big oyster people over here. So you like snotty textures. You can't talk about the texture. (laughs) The texture (laughs) is throw it back. But oysters are huge in the South. Like, these oyster roasts. Oyster roast. That is hard to say. It is. They're, They're big parties. So is that. I'm assuming that's what was going down. Oh, absolutely. And I get it. Like my family's from the East Coast and we would do big crab boils and things like that. I understand it. I'm just saying I would not have attended it. Now, I've never had an oyster cooked though. I have. I do not like them cooked. Why? They they get like gummy. Like you think you think the texture is weird if they're raw. Whenever they're boiled or roasted, they're like gummy. No, thank you. Not my thing. Anyway, enough about our personal our eating habits. <laughs> I will have champagne with you though. Okay. It's rumored Paul had heard that there was going to be roadside traffic stops that evening, so he told the group he would drive them on his family's boat to the party. Paul was seen on surveillance video buying liquor at a convenience store with his brother Buster's ID. They all met at Paul's grandfather's house, and the three couples loaded up onto the speedboat to the oyster roast. Morgan reported that Paul was pretty darn intoxicated by the end of the party, but still refused to let anyone else drive the boat. It seems that Paul, when alcohol was involved, got kind of a... He was a jerk. He remembered his last name even if he forgot his first name. That's how I'm going to phrase it. Like, I'm untouchable. Mm-hmm. Let me do everything because my name... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And quite frankly, why wouldn't he think that? We already know that teens don't have like their frontal lobe decision-making skills are not quite there. Then you add alcohol to the mix, but not only that, supposedly his family has gotten him out of a lot of messes before, so it's like, what's the worst that can happen? 
Apparently, he had not had enough, or at least in his mind, so he docked the boat around 1 a.m. and went to a local bar where he consumed two shots of hard alcohol with his buddy Connor, where the rest of the group waited around at the dock. Paul was clearly inebriated at this point, like, beyond, but still refused to let anyone else captain the boat. He was driving incredibly recklessly, and this made things get a little heated on board between everyone. At one point, it's reported that Paul was yelling at Morgan and slapped her across the face during this fight. And I just want to point out, if this is true, what someone is comfortable doing in public makes you very much question what is going on behind the scenes. Good point. He then threw the boat into a very high speed, and at 2.20 a.m., their boat crashed into Archer's Creek Bridge with everyone being thrown to the cold waters below. When Anthony came to on the banks, he realized Mallory was no longer with him. She had been sitting on his lap prior to the accident. This part of the documentary choked me up, and I'm going to try to not get upset here. But you can hear the teens calling out to her in the recording of the 911 call that Connor placed, and it is... I mean, the fear that's in their voices, it, oh my it gosh, just cuts sh- you. Yeah, the shakiness, like the panic in their voices. They're screaming at the top of their lungs over and over and over, probably while they're also hurting and in a state of shock. But to have all your friends there minus one. Mm-hmm. Anthony was beside himself and kept diving back into the freezing water to try to find Mallory. The current in this river at the time, guys, was incredibly strong. And if you see Anthony, he's not a small guy. He's a pretty strapping guy, even as a teenager. And he couldn't fight this current off. He kept having to come back to shore. But the current was too strong for him, and his efforts were futile. Emergency responders rushed Paul, Connor, Miley, and Morgan to the hospital to receive treatment for the injuries they received. Anthony, Mallory's boyfriend, again refused to go to the hospital and instead stayed at the scene to look for Mallory. Ugh, it's just... Picturing the heartbreak and panic that he was in. Having known this girl your whole life, basically. And having a a sense of responsibility for her, right? You're the boyfriend. And for it to be pitch dark, cold water, a big current, like it's just not a good equation. And you can just hear him screaming out for her. It's, It's terrible. Body cam footage from the police allows you to hear police talking just about how unruly and erratic Paul was behaving at the scene. Let's also keep in mind, it is February, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and they have been dumped into very cold water, and yet it didn't strike them as odd as that he was shirtless and just in his underwear when they got there. You would be, like, shivering, all of that. So to me, that tells how much alcohol is in your system, sir. Whenever your body doesn't even recognize how cold you are, yeah, a lot of alcohol. Yeah, you've had more than, like, a glass of wine at communion, okay? (laughs) However, they didn't do any sobriety tests on Paul at the scene. Later at the hospital, it was determined that Paul had a blood alcohol level of 0.286, which is three times the legal limit that had he even been of an age to consume alcohol legally, he was well outside the bounds of being able to do so safely. This was a while after the scene of the crime. Yeah. So it was probably even higher whenever he was driving the boat. Absolutely. They had to wait for Connor to make the call responders to get there and i'm sure that 911 call probably wasn't made instantaneously right their first thing was like where's mallory right they're all talking to each other panicking because keep in mind they also had alcohol too so their response time is going to be a little frizzle frazzled so there's a lot of time and yet it was at the hospital that they finally thought hmm, this guy is acting a little cuckoo for cocoa puffs why don't we see what's in his system so to your point he was probably even higher 
Paul Murdoch was never taken to jail following his health screening. He was not ever handcuffed for questioning or interrogation. Clearly, this is not standard procedure in a case where there is a driver who is wildly intoxicated and causes one girl to go missing and his friends to end up in the hospital, some with pretty severe injuries. It's pretty wildly believed that his last name had a heck of a lot to do with how Paul was treated and the special care he seems to receive and up until lately still was receiving. But in true Murdoch fashion, Daddy Dearest shows up with Grandpa at the hospital and they immediately go into damage control. Connor said on the Netflix documentary that he was told he was being pushed in to get a CAT scan, you know, sitting in his wheelchair because he had a pretty gnarly cut, to say the least, to his face. As he's getting pushed in, Alec Murdoch basically whispers in his ear to keep his mouth shut. Later in a deposition, he said Alec told him that everything was going to be all right. I just need to keep my mouth shut and tell them I didn't know who was driving and that he's got me. I've heard allegations and other reports that Alec was setting up a plan to orchestrate Paul's protection by using Connor Cook as a scapegoat and knew he would tell the police that Connor had been driving, not Paul. However, forensic evidence would later prove that Connor could not have been driving the boat and sustain the type of physical injuries he did, so their plan to frame him couldn't work, and they were aware of that. Mallory Beach's body was tragically discovered five miles down the river on March 3rd, eight days after the accident by two volunteer searchers. According to the coroner's office, Mallory died from drowning and blunt force trauma to her head. On April 18, 2018, Paul Murdoch was charged with three felony counts, one for boating under the influence causing death and two counts of boating under the influence causing bodily injury. He pleaded not guilty and was released on bail. But Paul Murdoch would never stand trial for the death of Mallory Beach because on June 7, 2021, two years after Paul's arrest, his father Alec Murdoch would make a panicked 911 call to report the fatal shootings of his son and Maggie Murdoch. This is Alec Murdoch at 4147 Moselle Road. I need the police to pass us immediately. My wife and child just got badly. Okay, you said 4147 Moselle Road in Arlington? Yes, sir. 4147 Moselle Road. Stay on the line with me, okay? Yes, sir. Stay on the line with me, okay? Okay. Connor County Communications. Carlton, I have an Alex Murdoch on the line caller from 4147 Moselle Road. He's advising that his wife and child was shot. Okay, and sir, give me the address again. It's 4147 Moselle Road. I've been up to it now. It's bad. Okay. Okay, and are they breathing? No, ma'am. Okay, and you said it's your wife and your son? My wife and my son. Are they in a vehicle? No, ma'am. They're on the ground out at my kennel. Okay, and did you see anyone? Okay, is he breathing at all? No. No. Is she? Okay, do you see anything? Do you see anyone in the area? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. And we will pick it up from there no. in the second episode. Uh, no, I do not want to end there. If you think that this twisted web has been unraveled during this episode, trust me, there is so much more to this story. In part two, we will cover the deaths of Paul and Maggie, the murder trial, and I'm going to be sharing some of my theories. 
because this is where I started really speculating and, and playing detective, and I cannot wait to share with you. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. I look forward to meeting you back here for part two of the Murdaugh episode. But as always, until then. <laughs>